All right, our scripture reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and chapter 4, starting in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And we read this together, please. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thank you, Allison. So is religion a good thing or a bad thing? Is religion a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, how, how do we answer this? Our, if we ask our culture around us, we'll, we'll see, ask the people around us, we might get a, a variety of answers, but I think that that will range indeed from, oh, it's the source of all our problems to, no, it's the only source of hope that we have. But indeed, it's a problematic question in and of itself because religion in any way is, I guess, as its core, this is maybe one of my definitions, uh, as at its core, it's just how we live in light of what we believe is beyond us. How we live in light of what we believe is beyond us. How we live with a sense of transcendence, that there is something beyond us. How we live based on what we believe about God and who we think He is, what kind of, what kind of God is He, and what does He think about us, that all impacts how we live. There's a movie called Chocolat from, I think, 2000 or so, and it takes place in 1959 in this little French town. And in this French town, there is a woman and her daughter move, and they're checking out the town, and they meet the mayor, who's a very, very, very uh, domineering kind of guy, personality, very outgoing, very, very eager to welcome you in, but uh, he makes sure that everyone comes to church, by the way. And so they all, this woman and her daughter, come to church, and he's the guest speaker, it so happens, the mayor is at this church, and uh, as he is almost every Sunday. And he is, when he preaches, he talks a lot about all the temptations that the people should resist and all the indulgence that they should refrain from and, and how, how indulging your desires is, is evil. He has this, desire, this image, this dream of a, a town that is like a beacon of a, a city on a hill 
because of how pure their lives are. And so he keeps everyone under, their, under his thumb. He makes sure, he monitors whether people are living uh, with any kind of indulgence in their lives. And the, the effect is, is that everyone is miserable and everyone is oppressed and depressed. And this woman and her daughter who come in and move to town, so happens she's a chocolatier. And she comes at the beginning of Lent, which is like his, his big, like, buckle down and really uh, resist temptation kind of guy. Resist anything that is pleasurable. Uh, and she starts a chocolate shop uh, right then. So that's the premise of the whole movie, and you can imagine how that goes over. But in that situation, religion can get a bad name, but essentially what's going on is he has a view of God, this man played by Alfred Molina, the mayor, he has a view of God that, that he's only going to love and accept them. And he's only, their town is only going to impress others. He's only going to be an impressive mayor if their town is able to purify themselves. And, and so that's the view of God that he has. That God will accept them only when they can be pure, so to speak. And religion can get a bad name in so many ways. Religion can be misused by many to do atrocious acts of evil. As scholar Lucretius said, this how, that's how much religion is able to persuade people to do evil. When thinking of Agamemnon, who, uh, to please the gods, in the mythological figure at the beginning of the Trojan War, uh, Agamemnon sacrificed his daughter Iphigenia to please the gods so that his uh, he'd have a better chance of military success. And we don't have to go far to see other ways that religion has, has been blamed or people have used or cited their belief in God to do atrocious things. So is that what religion's all about? No, I would say, again, religion is how we live in light of who we believe God is and what he thinks about us and, and, and what his plan for us is. I occasionally... Uh, we'll share uh, videos with, with some friends and, uh, that we find on YouTube. And a friend of mine shared me, with me a video of a Honda Odyssey, a minivan, which had been souped up. It had been hot-rotted uh, to, to peak at about 1,029 horsepower. And minivans are, you know, they're supposed to be stable. They are, they are reliable. They're wonderful. They can haul a lot of people comfortably. Uh, but they're not known for their uh, quarter-mile split time, right? They're, they're known for uh, just being there when you need it and taking people where you need to go. Uh, but with this 1,000-plus horsepower engine, you know, it may look like a normal minivan, but when it takes off, it goes. And people turn their heads and say, that's different. And anyone with a brain would know that's not a typical minivan. And they would also, with the brain, know that the minivan didn't somehow itself make itself go faster. That the minivan had an expert work under the hood and do things to it to transform it into something that felt more fully alive than what everyone else was settling for in life. I love my minivan, but still... Uh, they knew that someone from the outside had to do this, an expert. Expert mechanics could only do this. And in the same way, when we believe who God really is and who he says he is, and, and, and what, if we believe what he says uh, is how we are to feel and be loved by him and be accepted by him, that the gospel of Jesus is something that can transform us from the inside. 
And as it transforms us from the inside, it, it makes us more fully alive in very real ways. More fully alive in, in ways that, that are not the same as, as alive as one may feel after taking, drinking a few drinks or, or, or taking some illicit substances. That you might feel alive, but no, this is actually being more alive. It's not escaping, it's more engaging life with, 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 with love and with maybe an insight of fear, having some kind of a hope in the midst of fear. So with all this, we are designed in this way to live in community. Paul here is saying that the church itself, the church as a whole, is something that, that is to be missional in even how it functions. That he describes it as a household of God. It is the household of God. This is a theme that, that Paul, in his letter to Timothy, uh, mentions a few times. That we're the household of God. And how we live, and this whole letter is about how we ought to live and behave and function and be organized, right? And, uh, but also, behind the organization, what fuels us? What is changing us? And he says the church is designed to, to point, to draw people to itself, but really point it to the creator who is doing these changes in us, who is making these changes in us. And in doing so, we are a buttress of truth. In other words, we support the truth. We uphold the truth, provide evidence to the truth of God's existence, his holiness, his grace, his magnificence, his care, his love, and glorifying him by showing the world a community that will make, him, make them wonder what's under the hood. That has a whole different definition of religion. And so as we look at this, Paul kind of pieces this apart, what it looks like to really live as the church. And, and there are things that can, as any other, uh, as any other family, uh, things can, can poison a church. Uh, things, and so we'll look at what the poison is, what the antidote is, and who the healer is. So the, the poison, the antidote, and the healer. My wife Megan and I, when we were in seminary, uh, lived and were the resident managers of the Ronald McDonald House in Orlando, uh, which is a fantastic, fantastic charity. It was, it was a wonderful opportunity to be involved there. And uh, we, it's essentially a hotel on hospital property for uh, for the families of kids who are in the hospital and are inpatient care there. Uh, and so we got to have a lot of families stay with us in hard times. And I think there was one family, uh, they came and spent maybe just one or two nights. Uh, but they came because they went on vacation and had their house sprayed for, for bugs, for pests. Uh, they had someone come in and I don't know if they tented it or just bombed it or whatever they do. Uh, but they came back well after the time that it was supposed to be safe to come back home. They come back from vacation, and the house is clean. It's free of bugs. It looks healthy. It looks better. It looks wonderful. But they all wake up in the middle of the night incredibly nauseous. And so the parents think something's really not right here, and so they make the right decision and go to the ER and find out that there was still poison lingering there. They couldn't see it. The poison looked like health, right? It looked like it was a healthier place because all the bugs were gone. But there was still some poison there, despite appearances, that made them all sick. And I, I believe they all recovered just fine, too, by the way. But that's what this poison looks like. And the poison here is one of moralism and, or I don't know how to phrase it, moralistic perfectionism, moralistic performancism, and there's a certain superiority that comes from it. 
But it's this whole package of, of this teaching that Paul talks about, this alternate teaching of, uh, that, is, that sneaks in this, uh, this, these deceitful spirits and teachings of demons that, that require, uh, for, they forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods, and these are just examples of other teachings. The main teaching is, uh, you know, just work really hard to get rid of the bad. And the idea behind this is work really hard to get rid of the bad and God will love you. Work really hard to fix yourself and then God will love you. But this is poisonous. This is contrary to the gospel. And it's poisonous for you personally, but also for the household of God. And it's demonic. It is from deceitful spirits. And as, as one movie character, Kaiser Soze, said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Ah, but he's out there. And one of his best tricks is to convince us that we and our goal in following Jesus is somehow not, not so much to follow him and walk with him, but to try to make ourselves perfect so that he'll love us. Because that is so contrary to the truth. So let me explain like just some ways that this... Uh, that this can poison the church, right? How is, this, uh, how is this a hard thing? Like, if we're all just trying to be better people, why is this a really, why is this a bad thing? So I'll give you one example. One is Carmelo Anthony. Um, if you follow the NBA or news, you know that Carmelo Anthony is not currently playing for a team. He's 35 years old. He feels like he has a lot of game left in him, but he's not playing. He came, I think, right out of high school to the NBA and was, was a star, an instant star, and, and yet, he's without a team. It seems no one wants to bring him on. And one former teammate, uh, Chauncey Billups, mentions that in an interview, hey, I think I might know why. It, it's because of this. And no one wants to say it. Yes, his performance is going down. He's not as good as he once was. But what's really behind it is that Carmelo would never be happy at the end of a game unless he scored 30 points. Unless he was scoring far above the NBA average for points per game. 30 points, if you don't know the NBA, that's a lot. Like, if you're doing that, you are a star player for sure. And But he felt like if he wasn't performing as a star player every game, even if his team won, he was depressed and angry. Now, it's great to be motivated to do well, but you can imagine what that's like for his teammates. They're like, hey, we won the game, and, 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 and he's depressed and angry because he couldn't do 30 points. And there are a couple things really wrong with that. One, he, he's forbidding himself joy, if you will. He's forbidding himself uh, what God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Like work is supposed to, as I mentioned before, it's supposed to be, like it's going to be hard, but it's, there's a certain measure of purpose. We're supposed to be able to find some enjoyment and purpose in our work. And he's denying himself that joy. He's also saying, in a sense, I should be kind of the center of the team. And, and he's thinking his, the standard is different for him, that, that he should be better than everybody else. And that really was, was the thing that was crushing him, is he realized he wasn't the star every game. So this whole idea of moralism, performanceism, perfectionism, it has a superiority that comes with it, Right? And as we see, and with all fairness to Carmelo Anthony, like, it's, just, it's just that it's been public that I bring this out. It's probably not fair that I criticize him. Um, but, you know, I could, if I had more time, I'd give more examples of the same thing in my own life. Um, of, of times that, 
that I would, like when Megan and I were first married, she was wondering why I would spend so much time in the garage waxing my car. Um, and just in my mind, like having my car perfectly cleaned and waxed was just something that I would not settle anything else for. Like that was a, that was a non-negotiable. <laughs> I don't know why. Just that was my thing. It, it, it gave me a sense of, of, of worth, of security. It gave me a sense of purpose, I suppose. I'm not sure what it was. And we all have little things. We can have little things like that. They just seem absurd. Like why in the world would you put your hope on that? 30 points a game, a waxed car. I'd love a waxed car. It's not in my life right now, right? But um, it, it's great. But when that impacts the relationships that you have, it's a problem. And Paul is saying, look, your life with Christ is designed to be such that you will realize that the gospel is giving you what you're searching for by having that thing go perfectly in your life. That the gospel is giving you the reputation that you really want, giving you the worth that you really want. And you don't have to strive for that. In fact, you can rest in what Christ has done for you. And when we're resting, then we're much better to live with. Uh, and we've all, like, we have plenty of examples in, in society of, of ways that, in reality TV, and we see people living together, we see ways to not live together. In fact, entire reality TV shows are based on how not to live together, like Big Brother and is even in Survivor. It's like the whole game is on who gets voted out, right? Not how well you can love each other till the end. It's like, who do you get rid of first? Um, and, and so, you know, it really does shine a different light when we're living, uh, not with a moralistic performanceism or superiority, but with uh, gospel-changed hearts. And so there's also this element I want to point out of the seared conscience. The seared conscience that uh, Paul mentions. He says that a lot of this is brought about by people whose consciences, uh, the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And you might think, uh, what does that even mean to have a seared conscience? And it's kind of like this. It's like a seared steak. Like if you sear meat, uh, and this might start making you hungry, all right? But uh, you sear a nice juicy steak. What's it going to do? It's going to make the steak look done on the outside. It'll make the steak look really good. And the effect is that it, it adequately uh, better keeps the juices inside the steak, right? So while it's cooking to the temperature that you like, uh, the outside is nice and perfect, keeps the juices in. Anyway, uh, a seared conscience is one uh, is from those who want to, be, want to appear well on the outside and who believe that they are healthy and are tasty or whatever <laughs> on the outside, and even on the inside too. They want to believe they are, but they're not done yet on the inside. And the seared conscience is one that has difficulty and even an inability in being honest with ourselves. When there's a seared conscience, you can't even be honest with yourself. Uh, real quick, in one of C.S. Lewis's books uh, uh, on the, vo- the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a character called Eustace Scrub. And, you know, I love how C.S. Lewis opens it up. There's a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Uh, because he was, he was miserable. He was a miserable boy. He was insufferable. He was annoying. Like, he was constantly telling others how they could be doing things better. And he thought he, he could do that because he thought he was better than everybody else. But this sense of superiority... Uh, kind of poisoned his thinking. And they were all on a long boat ride, a long uh, voyage once, and they got, went through a hurricane for like 13 days, and water uh, from some of the fresh water pots were, had leaked, and so there was water rationing because there was such a short supply. But he's thinking, 
this. Uh, September 6th, the horrible day, woke up in the night knowing I was feverish and must have a drink of water. Any doctor would have said so. Heaven knows I'm the last person to try to get any unfair advantage, but I never dreamed that this water rationing would be meant to apply to a sick man. In fact, I would have woken up the others and asked for some water, only I thought it would be selfish to wake them. So I got up and took my cup and tiptoed out of the black hole so as not to wake anybody else selfishly. Uh, and I was taking great care not to disturb uh, Caspian and Edmund, for they've been sleeping badly since the heat and the short water began. Oh, I always try to consider others whether they are nice to me or not. Like, so Claire Eustace has totally created this whole narrative where everyone is mean to him and he deserves everything that he wants. He has a seared conscience. And as a result, he, he gets caught, um, and, but this doesn't stop with him. And when they finally land on the, on the island where they are, he decides, as everyone is working hard, he's like, it really, it really would be a bad idea for me to do something really unhealthful, unhealthful like break a sweat. You know, so I think, I think I might sneak away right now and just go on a, a little trek all by myself and take a nap up somewhere in the hills in this, in this island because uh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get in the way of anybody work, doing hard work, right? Because uh, they're trying to repair the ship from the hurricane. Anyway, he comes across a dragon's cave as the dragon dies. And he goes inside the, the cave and finds the jewelry and he puts on a bracelet and, and wakes up a dragon. And the commentary in the book says that this happened because he slept on a dragon's hoard with dragonish thoughts in his heart. And it would be some time before he were to realize the, the problem there. It is a problem. It impacts community. It, it's not, it is an illusion. If we feel we are morally better than somebody, it is a trap. Like Admiral Akbar, run. It is a trap. Uh, it is not a good, healthy place. If you feel like you're better than others, pray, God, show me the truth. Um, so that is the poison, but there is an antidote. The antidote to performanceism, moralism, and the sense of superiority that comes with it uh, is in so many ways, it is humility. That's what we need, humility, honesty, vulnerability, thanksgiving. Paul presents it this way, that, that these things are to be received with thanksgiving, that the opposite of living this way, the opposite of asceticism, as you would, uh, is thanksgiving. Uh, then there's nothing that you, that uh, there's no food that can't, should be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, made holy by the word of God and prayer. And Paul is saying to Timothy, who is the pastor of this church in Ephesus, Paul is kind of coaching Timothy as a pastor. He's saying, put these things before the brothers and you'll be a good servant of Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine you followed. Have nothing to do with those irreverent silly myths. Rather train yourself for godliness. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Paul is, interestingly enough, not saying that the antidote to this asceticism and striving and moralism is to not try. He's not saying that the antidote is to uh, like go the opposite direction and just do whatever you want. He's very clearly not saying that. He's talking about a different kind of striving, though. He's not speaking out of two ends of the mouth. It's a different kind of striving. 
It's a striving in truth. It is a desire, it is a training for godliness. It is the opposite of what this moralism uh, produces in us. Training ourselves for godliness. Uh, if we look, if you turn on your, in your phones or your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, we see that, uh, that the author of Hebrews is saying, saying this, Therefore, let us lay aside every weight, the sin that clings so closely, but let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That there is another kind of race, another kind of race of training in godliness. Uh, and we have a little sense of what this is. We know that first, based on Hebrews 12, it's focused on Jesus. That this race, first and foremost, is one that is focused on Jesus. It's following after him, pursuing him. We also know more about what this is when we go to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that this essentially is training in godliness. That have uh, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That to train yourself for godliness is to hold on to the truth of what Christ has done for you, but also to, to train yourself and work hard to, to count others more significant than yourselves. Because I don't know about you, but that takes work for me. <laughs> I, it's very easy for me to count myself more significant than others. It takes work to, to try to treat others as though they're more significant than me. It takes training it takes, it is hard work. But this training is, is not like bodily training. Bodily training is of some value. You go and run and, and you get your cardio up. Like that is of some value. That really is. Uh, but godliness, training for godliness, is of value in every way because it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. That this is the end for which we strive because our hope is on the living God. This is, now this is difficult, so and like I said, you know, we, this is, it's easy for me to, to want to put myself first and consider myself, it's natural for me to consider myself most important, just like everybody else. It's harder to put others first. This honesty, this antidote, is, uh, this humility is so crucial though. Uh, John Calvin mentions that, uh, that the way we ought to live, that the way we know uh, the way we live best, it concerns the knowledge of God and a knowledge of ourselves. And the knowledge of God is connected with the knowledge of ourselves. As these two are connected together by many ties, he says, it's not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. But we pursue knowing God, and as we do, we ought to be knowing ourselves better and even knowing the hard things about us. But as we know those things and as we make them known, make them known confessing them to God, even make them known in community, it's refreshing. It's liberating. I think this is a huge reason why Alcoholics Anonymous continues to exist. Not only to exist, I mean, it seems to thrive. That Alcoholics Anonymous is still going. It's still running. People find what they're looking for at Alcoholics Anonymous. 
It's a place where they meet regularly, sometimes daily. And when they're there, they know who they are, a piece of who they are, right? A piece of who they are. I think it'd be helpful for them, uh, for those in AA. And I, I've, I've been invited as a guest uh, at a meeting once, and so I've seen it. But I've, I've seen, yes, that they, they know, and it's transformative for them to admit, yes, I am an alcoholic. This is, my, this is who I am, and I'm an alcoholic. But they are welcomed there regardless of their failure. They're welcomed as they present their humility. They're welcomed as they open up and say, yes, here are the ways I have failed my family, my friends, my loved ones, because they know, and one of the 12 steps, I believe, is it fully assumes that in your alcoholism that you've hurt others. If you've struggled with alcoholism, by the way, I want you to know that there is, this is not um, an endless source of shame for you, that there is hope. And there is a God who loves you and a Jesus who died for your shame. You do not have to live in that cycle of shame forever. But, uh, but coming forward and admitting it and finding a place where you can talk about your weakness is so crucial. The church really would, would do very well uh, to be more like AA. A, be a, to be a place where we can be honest with ourselves and with each other. A place where, where we can... Um, where we can truly uh, feel loved and be reminded of God's love for us. So with, with this, however, there are obstacles to us even doing this. There are obstacles to us being able to be humble and be honest with ourselves. I've, I've experienced many of those obstacles myself. Uh, in the introduction, I, I mentioned a... Uh, well, no, I'll skip that part. Let me just go straight to back to Eustace. Eustace became a dragon, right? And at first, he probably thought, this is pretty cool. Well, at first, he was scared because he thought there was a dragon near him. And then he realized he was a dragon. Oh, okay, there's not a dragon near me. I am the dragon. So he was shocked. But then there's a certain sense of a surge of power that you would get from being a dragon. But then great, great sadness because he realized that, I mean, he just really longed to be human again. He became a dragon again because of his dragonish thoughts in his heart. And I think he begins to sense this. And realized that becoming a dragon was, was only appropriate for how he had been living. It's a beginning of a place of transformation for Eustace. But even as he rejoins his human companions, no one knows how to transform him back. They, they welcome him. They realize that he is Eustace. And they, they're excited to see him because they thought he was you know, kidnapped or something. Uh, they thought maybe he died. But he's there. And, but they don't know how to fix him. The antidote, yes, is humility, but sometimes the antidote can't actually, it's not there. Sometimes it can feel like, and so many times it feels like when you read self-help books, when you hear other things, like you hear good ideas, you hear how to change, uh, and maybe even reading the Bible, how to change, but it's, it can end up being like a gift card that never gets activated. Like you can't buy anything with a gift card that hasn't been activated. You need to have it activated. You need to have the person in charge activated. And so we need to come not just to the teachings of Jesus, but to Jesus himself. It's in relationship with him. And you would think of all the people to, to bring my struggles to, the last person I want to bring them to is Jesus, because, you know, there's so much about him that is just really intimidating and so much, like, if you really think about it, I mean, look at this passage in 1 Timothy that he, Paul just goes off on that Jesus was manifested in the flesh, this mystery of godliness 
He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And I can just imagine the image Paul has of, of, of what he's trying to communicate. That you have, in many times in the Old Testament, Moses or Isaiah or Joshua, somebody is in the presence of even an angel of God, let alone God himself. Isaiah sees God in his throne room and falls down and says, Woe is me, because of his holiness, because of his goodness. Because there truly is no one in the world like him, knowing that he is holy and we are not. But to be in his presence, and yet that is the God that was manifested, manifested in flesh as a baby. The fullness of the deity became a baby. And he was vindicated, he was justified, validated by the Spirit, as, as the Spirit of God in a few instances said, this is my son, whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Angels were witnesses. He was proclaimed among the nations, believed by many. This Jesus, you would think, is so intimidating. The last person I want to be honest with probably is him, and yet he came that we could be honest with him. And he's the only one who can heal. He's the only one who can heal. He is the way. He is not just pointing us to the way. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. As when Eustace became a dragon, he found out that only coming to Aslan could heal him. Then he, he realized that, uh, and this is beautifully played out by C.S. Lewis, because uh, Eustace comes and, and, and Aslan says, well, I will heal you. I have this magic water you can jump in, but first you must undress. And he's like, I'm a dragon, and I don't, I know I'm not wearing clothes, but I don't consider myself to be naked, even though I'm not wearing clothes, but... Then he realizes, oh, undress, maybe take off my scales. And so he, he sheds his skin, he sheds his scales, he molts. And then, and then but that's not enough because there's more scales underneath. And so he scratches at it again and takes off, and it repeats itself. And then finally, Aslan has to reach in with his own claw and, and pierce through it all. And, then, and it says it hurts like crazy when it comes off, but then he was fresh and new like a boy. He jumped in the water and it stung, but then he was more fully alive. It takes Jesus to be able to do this. It takes a Savior who was willing to leave all that he was, to leave his true superiority, his true moral superiority. He never sinned, but he came down to us nevertheless, never considered himself better than anyone else. But considering others better than himself, became like a servant, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, that we, even though when we die, shall live again. There is great power in hoping in this. And so as we struggle, as we strive, fighting the good fight in this case is to fight to hold on to these truths. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you and, and we ask indeed that you would draw us closer and heal us of our dragonish thoughts that you would do such a work in us that the world around us would say, okay, I know that those are very normal people. In many ways, they're messed up like me, but there's something they have inside them, something going on there. Father, we pray you would shine your glory and your light through us. Father, I know we're still kind of a new church. I know we're about to celebrate three years together. We're about to, and some of us have, haven't even been there that long. We, we, we get new people all the time. And it's so tempting, Father, to, to always want to be someone that maybe we're 
just wish we were. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that we could be more ourselves. Teach us what that's like, because that, the world does not model that, Father. Teach us, teach us how to do that. Lead us. In Jesus' name we pray, and for his glory. Amen.